Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And welcome to First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio this morning. We're so glad that you are here today. And I want to thank uh, Joe Moore for his prayer this morning about the events that are taking place now in Israel. Uh, there are many in this room who have traveled to Israel, some as recently as just a year ago. There are others who have friends and even family in Israel. And the news coming to us this morning is, and really all weekend, has been nothing short of horrifying. It takes me back to when we were there just last year. And as we were, uh, as our group was crossing from one part of Jerusalem into another, we, we happened to cross paths with a company of new young Israeli Defense Forces cadets. They were probably 18 to 20 years old, the exact same age as my kids. You know, they're just right at that, that between high school, college age, um, just some of the brightest, nicest kids you'd ever meet. I, we we kind of got tangled up with them for a minute. They were get, waiting to get in one area. We were waiting to get into another, so we had a chance to, to talk with them a little bit, share some conversation with them, and just what great kids. And as I was hearing the, the reports this morning, uh, as I was driving into the church, as I was reading some of the things that are going on, I just couldn't help think about those young men and women, those Israeli soldiers who are mixed up in all this now. And I began wondering to myself, where are they now? Where are some of those, where are those individuals that, that I met, that we met um, those were the, the sons and daughters of other men and women my age. They were the age of my kids. And right now, as I think about them, it makes me very worried, not only for them, but for, for others in Israel. You know, having been there, uh, these, these reports are not just news reports anymore. They're much more real. And just as the Bible is is uh, takes place in in this particular place and just as uh, just as it is the background for all that we consider holy um, we remember that these are real places with real people living real lives and so we want to make sure that we are praying for them not just as characters in a drama but as real men and women and i hate to say this but real kids who are right in the middle of this right now so please, as Joe said earlier, pray for the peace of Israel as Scripture bids us to do, especially over the next few days in these critical moments of decision. Well, we have been studying together the book of 1 Corinthians, and today we are going to take a, a high-level look at chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. But let me begin by telling you a little bit of a story. Years ago, on a mission trip to Honduras, I got to know several of our translators. One of them was a man my age, and we'll just call him for the sake of the story, Peter. We talked about Christ together. He prayed beautifully, and he helped me counsel people when, when the language barrier between me and the person that I was talking with was just too great. He helped me to, to counsel quite a few people in those days. He was a huge help to our ministry while we were in Honduras. And then one day during a lull in our activity, I asked him, 
hey, Peter, when did you become a Christian? Well, that's when things got a little bit awkward. He said, Pastor, I'm not really a Christian yet. And that floored me. I mean, what do you mean? You, he prayed so beautifully. He, you know, he works for church groups all the time as a translator. He, he was wonderful in his counseling and helping me to counsel people. I said, what do you mean you're not a Christian? He said, well, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. And I believe that he's the son of God and that he died for our sins. But I can't be part of a church yet because I still, well, you know, I like to go out and have fun. I mean, not with drugs, but, but you know. I, I want to go to church. I want to be a part of the church, but, but you know. Peter's problem was that he believed in the gospel, but he still loved to party. He said over and over again, I believe in Jesus, but do you know what I'm talking about? Unfortunately, yeah. I do know. I think we all do. How many of us have tried to live double lives? Religious on Sunday morning and secular on Saturday night. At some point, we have to choose which life we want to live and how we want to identify. Well, the Corinthians faced a similar challenge. They were still trying to figure out what it meant to be and to believe and live as Christians in a non-Christian world. What's acceptable and what's not acceptable? What's allowable? What's forbidden? And part of the problem in learning to live as a Christian in a non-Christian world is living to learn, learning to live as a Christian in a culture of idolatry. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul takes up this issue again. Now, as we read our scripture passage today, I'm going to pick up a few highlight verses, but I want you to turn to this passage, to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians in your pew Bibles, because I'm going to be referencing the whole chapter and pointing out specific verses. It's on page 1137 in your pew Bible, and we're going to begin in chapter 10 with verse 12. These are the verses printed in your bulletin. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He then addresses the, the church concluding the chapter saying, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. In our passage for today, the apostle needed to attack and he needed to address the problem 
of idolatry. Now, now, idol worship is one of those things, it's one of those topics that people don't seem to worry about all that much anymore. It's kind of like, you know, gluttony. We don't have a problem with that anymore, right? In church circles, idolatry is even a somewhat outdated topic, even though the Bible sure seems to talk a lot about it. When most people think about idols, they think of gold statues of animals or cast images of Greek or Egyptian or voodoo gods. Or we might even think back to the chapter of Exodus, chapter 32, dealing with the golden calf that Moses' brother Aaron made to placate the people when they were beginning to get a little bit restless. According to Webster, idolatry is not just the worship of images or idols. It's also an excessive attachment or veneration for some person or thing. And so it's not just limited to those things that we traditionally think of in terms of idolatry. It can also be any object of ardent or excessive devotion or adoration. Anytime we take something, anything, and put it in the place or priority of God, we are guilty of idol worship. Idol worship, in its classic sense, is taking anything created and putting it in the place of the Creator. It is anything that turns our eyes from God to something else. Now to the Christian, an idol can be anything other than God. Anything that receives worship or excessive attention or adoration. Anything. For as long as humans have lived in a fallen world, idolatry has been a threat even to the people of God. In 1 Corinthians 10, 7, if you look at verse 7, Paul wrote this, Do not become idolaters as some of the Hebrew people did. We must not put Christ to the test. We see even here in the first part of chapter 10 that Paul describes idolatry as a problem. And he describes some of the ways that the ancient Hebrews had fallen into idolatry. Now look at, what, look at the way he describes it. It's really interesting. Because in his description of idolatry, Paul doesn't mention golden statues or pagan temples. Instead, he talks about idols like this, sexual immorality as an idol. He talks about tempting God as an idol. He even talks about complaining as an idol. That's starting to get a little close to home, isn't it? You see, idols are not just golden calves, and graven images. They can be attitudes, obsessions, passions, addictions, all kinds of things. They can be opinions or philosophies, loyalties or affiliations or relationships. Anytime an idea turns into an ism and people are willing to die or kill for it, chances are that that idea or philosophy has become an idol. And here's the danger. Idolatry and temptation go hand in hand. Idolatry is the gateway to temptation. Even though your brain tells you that an idol is not a real God, your heart can't tell the difference. Our appetites want what our appetites want. 
And idols are dangerous because they get under your skin. And that's what was happening to the Corinthians. Because in some ways, the Corinthians were living double lives. They wanted to follow Christ, but they still had one foot in the pagan world. Intellectually, they knew and accepted the content of the gospel, but their grip on the gospel was shaky because they wanted to hold on to that familiar pagan culture, that culture of magic and power and money and pleasure and tradition. They didn't want to lose the approval of their old friends or the comforts of their old superstitions. And that's why Paul's warning here is so strong. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. That's what he says in verse 21 of chapter 10. Paul was warning them and us that all idols are dangerous because even if idols have no supernatural power, they do have some psychological power over people. What that means is they make us do crazy things. Or rather, people do crazy things for the sake of their idols. The desire for sex makes people do crazy things. The desire for money makes people do crazy things. Obsessive fear makes people do crazy things. The love of power makes people do crazy things. And if we're not careful, our idols become our gods. And those gods require sacrifice. If my career is my idol, my desk becomes my altar. And time with my family is the sacrifice. I sacrifice my children for the sake of my job so that I can get wealth and status. Or if acceptance is my idol, then compliance becomes my ritual and myself and my character are the sacrifices. Or if intimacy is my idol, pornography or sexual promiscuity become my ritual and the trust of my wife is my sacrifice. Political victory, if that becomes my idol, then compromise becomes my altar and convictions are my sacrifice. Here's the thing, we've all got them. So what are your idols? What are you willing to risk? Or what sacrifices are you willing to make? Or whom are you willing to betray and lay on the altar to allay your fears, to fulfill your ambitions, or to slake your desires? Idolatry is first and foremost a personal issue. And idols are dangerous because they become triggers. Now the word trigger sounds like one of those psychobabble buzzwords. But a trigger is something that sets you off, that can spontaneously and somewhat inexplicably arouse or distress you, that can make you sentimental or that can make you 
angry. For example, an idle, a, a, a beer commercial can become a trigger, or a single drink because it triggers a powerful craving for another drink, or a racy movie or a subtle flirtation that excites a person to lust. That's a trigger. Or a symbol like a swastika that, that conjures fear or dark despair in some people and furious anger in others. That's a trigger. Or even the presence of a person that awakens some memories of bullying or shame. That's a trigger. And an idol's power is that it triggers something deep in us that tempts us to turn away from the Lord or away from others or against ourselves. Now, we all like to pretend that nothing gets to us, that we don't have any triggers, that we don't overreact, that we can't be set off by big or little things. But come on, you know you've got them. We all do. We all know we have triggers, things that activate our anger or our passions or our frustrations that remind us of past guilt or grief. Maybe it's things people say. Maybe it's things people do, little habits. Maybe it's things people wear. Maybe it's something we see in the news or the behavior of certain types of people. These are triggers, and they can lead to temptation. And this is what Paul is warning the Corinthians about in the first place. Idols trigger the personal temptations that we have to deal with all the time. So how do we handle the triggers, the, excuse me, the idols that trigger us in our personal lives all the time? But idolatry is not just a personal issue, it can also be a social issue. And here in chapter 10, for the second time, Paul brings up the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. At issue is this, how do I deal with the idols and beliefs of the people around me, especially in a culture that is full of triggers? The tensions felt by the Corinthians was this, how do you as a follower of Jesus Christ relate to the people you love when the people that you love are idolaters? How do you deal with them when they are always throwing idols up in your face? That's really what's at the heart of this whole meat-eating issue. Now, on the one hand, Paul has said in the previous chapter that this issue is about our witness. It's about, what, it's about what eating meat either signals or means to others and how it affects them. On the other hand, the whole meat sacrifice to idols issue is not just about what other people think about us eating meat sacrificed to idols or about us just making a brother stumble. It's also about what it does to me. How does that affect us? When I see other people eating food sacrificed to idols, or if I'm asked to do that myself, does it put me into a situation where I am particularly vulnerable to my triggers? either to temptation or frustration or fear or anger. I mean, I know that I'm supposed to love my neighbors, 
But their idols trigger something very negative in me. Maybe it activates something bad in me. Maybe it awakens something dark and hidden, some forgotten hurt or shame, something that terrifies me or some desire that tempts me to go back to my old life or to fall back into my old habits. And that tension is felt by the Corinthians. And it's also frequently felt by us, is it not? For example, what do I do when an innocent, pagan, idol-worshiping friend invites me to dinner and serves me food sacrificed to idols? Paul's response to the question was this. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So in a sense here, he's giving us permission to eat that food. And Jesus faced a similar situation. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of outreach, Jesus faced a similar situation. The Gospel of Mark chapter 2 tells us about a time when Jesus went to a party at the house of Levi, who was also known as Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector for the Romans. His own people despised him and considered him a traitor against God and his people. And that upset the religious leaders. The scribes of the Pharisees demanded to know, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the implication is that the holy God and therefore a holy person would not have anything to do with people like that. And yet there was Jesus, as Mark says, reclining with them. That means he was hanging out with them. He was hanging out with Matthew and his deplorable, contemptible, unclean friends. He wasn't rebuking them. He wasn't preaching at them. He was getting to know them. He was relating. He was showing them that he was interested in who they were, in hearing about their lives. It doesn't mean that he endorsed everything they did, but it shows that he cared enough to be present with them and not to shun their company. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And here's the tension in the story. Jesus was saying, I'm not violating the will of God by being with these sinners. I am fulfilling it by being with them. Because Jesus, because when Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous but sinners, he was saying, I didn't come to call the people who love God. I came to call the people who hate God who resent God, who don't trust God, who have contempt for God, who believe that they are better off without God. He came for the people whose attitude about God made them selfish or paranoid or perverted or hateful or racist or apathetic or hurtful toward other people. Jesus came for people like that. God didn't keep Jesus away from sinners. He dropped him down right in the middle of, well, us. Right in the middle of sinful humanity. 
And I believe that if Jesus had been dropped into Corinth, he would have told his followers, I've not come for the people who never eat meat sacrificed to idols. I've come for the ones who don't know any better or who can't help it or who are afraid not to or who do it to spite God. And so Paul reminds us that it's not about what you eat. It's about who you are eating with. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. He's saying, do you see the opportunity here? Do not offend the Jews. Do not offend the pagans. Don't offend the other church people. Instead, be positive. He sees this as an opportunity to share the gospel. He's saying, don't be a jerk. Be respectful. Our job is not to fix people. Our job is to find people for Jesus Christ. Jesus called us to be fishers of men. But even though we are the ones who catch them, he is the one who cleans them. But at the same time, Paul gives us a warning. He says, watch out. Watch out that what the idolatry of others triggers in us. What does the idolatry of others trigger in you personally? Paul addresses that too. He says, but if the person makes a point to you and brags that this food has been offered and sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it. For the, sake of, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of your own conscience. The real question is this. Does the idol trigger temptation in you? And what effect does it have to the people around you? So again, what do we do? How do we live as Jesus followers in a world of idols? I think that there are two things that we need to do, we need to remember at the outset. First, is to never underestimate their threat. Paul writes, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What he means is that all of us are susceptible to the temptation of idols. How many of you have ever heard or said the words, I never thought it could happen to me? How many of you have ever heard those from other people who never thought it could happen to them? We have to take temptation seriously because temptation is ruinous. A moment of temptation can lead to a lifetime of disaster. So never underestimate the threat of idols, but never overestimate their power. Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He writes, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Our problem is that we give our idols too much power. 
We love them too much or we fear them too much. And this verse is saying that there is no temptation more powerful than you. And there is certainly no temptation more powerful than God. And He is faithful. In the end, it comes down to this. The best way to deal with temptation, the best way to deal with idols, is to abandon the fakes and follow the real thing. I had a friend, you've heard me tell this story before, but I had a friend who was an agent for the IRS once. He said that in the academy, when they were teaching them how to deal with counterfeits, they didn't show them a thousand different counterfeits and force them to identify the aberrations, the wrong details in the counterfeit bills. Instead, what they made them do was to learn obsessively what a real bill looks like. So that from that point on, whenever they saw a fake, they could tell it immediately. Paul wants us not to try and chase down every possible idol as a substitute, but rather to understand that we must know the real thing. The real thing that we are to pursue is the glory of God. In the end, it comes down to this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of, of God, says Paul. Whatever else we do, our chief end is to glorify God. As Calvin said, he created us and placed us in this world to be glorified in us. And it is indeed right that our life, of which he himself is the beginning, should be devoted to his glory. Even when we are trying to reach people outside of the tent, we have to remember to focus on the center pole. We have to guard our own hearts and remember that God's glory is the center pole of our lives. We must never compromise the truth for the sake of making friends. And that means that we need to honor that we must take the honor of his name seriously, that we must take his word seriously, that we must take his law seriously, that we must take his holiness seriously. And when we stumble, not if, but when we stumble, we must repent and take his forgiveness seriously. Paul says that we must flee from idolatry because God is a jealous God. What he means is that God wants us completely for himself. There is nobody in this universe that loves you more and wants what is best for you more than he does. And Jesus gave his life on the cross to prove it. And when the apostle says that God is jealous, he means not only that God wants you for himself, but more importantly, he wants himself for you. He gave his own son so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. My Honduran friend Peter's problem was that he thought he could get more out of life by living a double life, when in fact, he was getting less out of life because he was divided. He was trading the richness of God for the cheapness of idols. Our problem is not that we want too much out of life, but rather that we are satisfied with too little. 
We chase after idols because we think that they can fill an emptiness in our hearts or heal a wound in our souls. But idols are not real. They are nothing. And when you try to fill an empty hole with nothing, it never gets filled. The greatest danger of idolatry is that it distracts us from the importance and significance of the real God in our lives. We are too satisfied with the fake little gods and miss out on the glory and the majesty of the big, real God. Your Father does not want you living a divided life. He wants you to find full satisfaction in Him. So what idols are competing with God for your attention, for your trust, for your hope? What hole in your heart are you trying to heal? heal? And what wound in your soul are you trying to fill? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that... Even in a life filled with idols, a culture full of distractions, you are a bright beacon that draws us to truth. But we ask you, O oh God, to help us to flee from the idols that seem to surround us, that seem to pull at us and pull us away from you and from those that you are calling us to. Lord, when we, when we reach out, help us to understand that you are not going to put us in a situation where we are not able to glorify you, but rather you are putting us in a position where we might show forth your love through the endurance you give. Help us, O oh God, not to put our trust in the things of this world, but to put our trust in you. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.